My name is Mark Beattie, I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. In this podcast, I'm going to highlight content from the February edition. The first article I've chosen to discuss relates to how common is chronic fatigue syndrome. Most paediatricians regularly see children with chronic fatigue syndrome, although the epidemiology has not been well studied. In this month's issue, Esther Crawley reviews what's currently known. There are various definitions. Fatigue has to be chronic and disabling, last at least three months, and be accompanied by one to four additional symptoms. Data from the Avon Longitudinal Study of Parents and Children at age 13 showed a prevalence of 2.4%, that's three months of chronic fatigue, and 0.9% at six months. Many sufferers never consult a doctor. Female gender, genetics and viruses are all risk factors. The role of exercise versus sedentary behaviour is poorly understood. And anxiety and depression are both risk factors and complications. Contrary to widely held assumptions, there is no particular social class predominance, although socio-economic and family factors are clearly relevant. In general, the outcome in childhood is common with recognition of the condition and appropriate multidisciplinary input. The second article I'd like to cover relates to the important topic of bruising in children assessed for suspected physical abuse. So we know that bruising in childhood is common and it's the most common injury sustained by children who've been physically abused. In this issue, Kemp and colleagues from Wales report the characteristics of bruising and the mode of presentation of 519 children, all aged less than six years, referred for assessment of suspected physical abuse. Bruising was more common in children whom physical abuse was confirmed, that's in 89%, than in children in whom physical abuse was excluded, that's 69%. The odds of a bruise on the buttock or genitalia, ear, cheek, neck, trunk, head, front of thighs, upper arms, were significantly greater in children in whom physical abuse was confirmed. Petechiae, linear bruising, bruising with a distinct pattern, bruising in clusters, additional injuries, or child known to social services were also significant risk factors. All children referred with suspected physical abuse require a careful clinical assessment, multidisciplinary review and discussion. This paper provides, on a population basis, further understanding of the factors that should be considered when a child is referred with bruising and should help improve the quality of the decisions made. In an accompanying editorial, Hilary Cass, President of the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health, discusses the wider issues of increasing the evidence base, enhancing training and providing mentoring for paediatricians who regularly assess children who may have been abused. The third paper that I'd like to cover relates to physical illness in looked-after children. So looked-after children refer to children looked after by local authorities and children looked after by local authorities are known to have higher health care needs with a higher prevalence of physical illness than those in their own homes. 
In this issue, Martin and colleagues compare the reported point prevalence of chronic physical illness in a cross-sectional survey using data from a national survey. Data was collected on 1,253 looked-after children and compared with 10,438 in their own homes. Epilepsy, cystic fibrosis and cerebral palsy were more commonly reported in looked-after children. That's with odd ratios of 4, 4 and 7 respectively. There was no difference in gluea, diabetes mellitus, spina bifida or cancer. Somewhat surprisingly, asthma, eczema and hay fever were less common. The overall physical illness burden of looked-after children is high. It may be the lower incidence of atopic disease reflects underreporting. The importance of transferring accurate information and engaging health in this vulnerable group is discussed. Looked-after children often have frequent changes in caregivers and healthcare providers, and looked-after status is associated with low socio-economic class, which further contributes to physical ill health. Geeta Croft, in an accompanying editorial, discusses the important issue, relevant to all paediatricians, of meeting the physical health needs of our looked-after children. The fourth article which I'd like to cover relates to tackling the obesity crisis. This is much written about, much talked about, and affects very high media coverage. In early 2013, the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges published a report, Measuring Up, with 10 recommendations targeted at healthcare professionals, at the obesogenic environment, and towards making healthy choices the easy choices. In this issue, in a useful and informative leading article, Alan Jackson and colleagues from Southampton review the recommendations and ask the question, tackling the obesity crisis, how do we measure up? They look at the problem, the need to intervene, means and endpoints of intervention, examples of success, and the role of doctors in leading the campaign. It's a very helpful and thorough article. It's essential reading for all paediatricians. In the final article, which I'd like to highlight this month, I want to discuss peer mentoring. So mentoring is important for the personal and professional development of doctors. It should be considered separately from educational supervision, appraisal and assessment, and can be from peers, seniors and colleagues from different specialities and different professions, and it can be delivered both informally and formally. Many of our junior doctors now work mostly shifts and the traditional firm structure is less evident, which can make sustained developmental relationships with colleagues much harder to establish. In this issue, Eisen and colleagues report their experience with a peer mentoring scheme. Mentors, that's trainees, were selected by competitive interview and trained and then matched to more junior trainees. Peer mentor and mentees reported high satisfaction rates, acquisition of new and transferable skills and changed behaviours. There seems to be a high demand for such schemes and their implementation will be essential if we want to enthuse and nurture the next generation of paediatricians. 
I'd like to finish by highlighting some content from Education and Practice this month. There's an excellent 15-minute consultation by Penelope Bryant and Mike South who provide a structured approach to the infant under two years of age who presents with frequent infections. The key is a focused history, elucidation of red flags and at the same time seeking benign explanations for the frequency of infections which account for the majority of children thereby avoiding unnecessary investigations. Before I go, I'd also like to draw your attention to another new social media outlet from the archives. We've recently started a Twitter journal club. This runs on a monthly basis and discusses an article of relevance to child health. The articles are made open access in the run-up to the journal club. Log on to the website for further details. I'm Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease in Childhood. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast.